The future is now. Site reliability engineering to me is one of those places where it's almost too easy to fall into the trap of just taking action after action after action. We talk about proactive maintenance or, or proactive monitoring and all those things. I think sustainability is an extension of that premise. How can I plan for the workload in a way where I can still meet my SLA, but do it in a way that I spread the work out over cheaper, more sustainable compute? I think SRE is, is really positioned well because sitting at the point of observability, sitting at the point of architecture, sitting at the point of delivery, that's an essential pinnacle where you have that all-seeing eye to, to be able to interact and kind of push and pull and make differences, I think, everywhere. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Making of the SRE Omnip podcast. Sustainability is no longer just an ambition. Over the last few years, we're starting to see companies actively doing things and changing their behavior to be more sustainable. There is a lot of talk around improving how we manage assets, facilities, and infrastructure to drive clean energy transition and decarbonization. And I can think of no better person to speak on this subject than our guest today, Mike Hollinger. Mike is a distinguished engineer, master inventor, and CTO of IBM Sustainability Software. I'm so excited to have him here with us today. Welcome to the show, Mike. Kevin. It is absolutely a pleasure. I am so happy to be here. And howdy from Austin. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember we first talked about having this conversation yeah. when I visited the beautiful Austin Design Studio. The circle is now complete. Mike, can you get us started by sharing with the audience how you arrived at this influential role? I have a background in sitting between subsystems, between different pieces of technology. So my, my formal education is in computer engineering. And for those of you that don't know, that straddled computer science and electrical engineering. My first job in IBM was writing firmware for our, our hardware team. And I kind of moved in the layers of the stack until I was actually building an AI solution that we folded into uh, the Maximo organization. For those that don't know, Maximo is a large set of capabilities now in a suite, the Maximo application suite, that are designed to help people leverage their data and drive business outcomes. So being the AI guy amongst the uh, asset management people or being the software person amongst the hardware people, that's, that's always been kind of my, my career track. We have another thing in common. I also graduated with the electrical computer engineering degree. Ah, but nice. I haven't done much hardware nice. engineering since I started working. Nice. Uh, I get to fix one wire on one card one time. So I have that. So, Mike, I'm curious. As a distinguished engineer for sustainability portfolio, what does sustainability mean to you in the context of reliability engineering and facilities and assets. I love trying to define this by actually backing away from sustainability for a second. You hear the term ESG rattling around 
right? <laughs> yes. And we just kind of lump it into what's your ESG report. Uh, <laughs> and it begins to define something in someone's head. But taking those three letters apart, like the E, the S, and the G for a second, talking about what sustainability means in terms of environmental, in terms of social uh, reporting and sustainable reporting, in terms of governance practices of all of the above. The premise of creating intelligent assets, the premise of creating a system that can self-heal or that can tell you what's wrong with it or taking a super complex machine or something as big as a building and enabling that to live and breathe as one of our customers might say. That's what sustainability means to me. It's that ability for the system to not only just tell you, hey, there's an alert firing, but to offer a suggestion on what the next action is that might try to save energy or save costs down the line. Those things directly impact someone's carbon footprint on the one hand, but they also impact the bottom line, right? They impact the the choice of where you're choosing to, to spend your money and they maybe help free up money for other areas. I love that quote, to live and breathe, an intelligent system to give recommendation on where to spend the effort to reduce carbon footprint as well as impact on the bottom line. So Mike, is reducing cost, saving money, the intersect between ESG, SRE and intelligent assets? Well, I, I think that that the you know, money is is a big piece of it, right? We're mm -hmm. we are part as IBM part of a for profit business, yeah. but our customers are for profit, non profit, government, right. and the incentives for all of those are different. If I talk mm -hmm. to someone who's a, a road works manager for a given right. state, so Department of Transportation head. They're going to care about their constituents and mm. the constituents' ability to get where they need to go or to transit uh, materials and goods where it needs to go. That service that they're providing is a roadway, right, or a bridge or a tunnel. In SRE, there's a similar premise of us, you know, providing a service to enable someone. And I think that there's an interesting kind of parallel between the two because if I do my job, you never noticed that I was here in some <laughs> situations, right? Yes. That's, I think, a similar thing in both sides. That is totally true. I always joke, many people think SRE as firefighters. Call us when there's a fire, but I would love to be in the state where people think SRE mm -hmm. as more of a fire prevention. Talk about sustainability is a new. I'm curious, in your talk with customers, do you feel there was a collective aha moment that changed how companies look at sustainability? I think that there hasn't been an aha moment. It's not like suddenly overnight something changed, right? But there's this kind of groundswell moment that we're in mm. where you hear from constituents, you hear from customers, you hear from suppliers even, or people that are buying, people that are in procurement. This, this question of, hey, what, what is it that it's costing me, right? What are you having to do to produce this thing that's in front of me? 
it's interesting right now because for IBM, IBM has been around for over a century. Mm -hmm. uh, I was part of our hardware team like we talked about. And we have a massive supply chain. And we operate in many countries, in many locations, in many buildings. And we've been tracking our environmental footprint for, for decades, yeah. right? We've been reporting on that for decades. And I think are one of those that has been uh, leading the pack there. Now, outside of IBM, there are other companies that are similar, uh, taking steps forward that have been always at the forefront. In fact, I actually went up to uh, Montreal and spoke with a customer who provided for the first time this past year, a combined ESG report and financial report. So not only were they reporting on the health of the business and you know, projecting forward, they were also saying, here's how we're working on equity for our employees and you know, our customers, different cities and uh, places where we do business. Here's how we are pushing our suppliers to be transparent. And that, that I think is a little bit different compared to say five or 10 years ago. So it sounds like a collective curiosity from consumers, customers, supply chain, asking those questions that has led to the change. There's an interesting uh, parallel to data privacy and the, the EU with GDPR or California in the US or uh, almost every uh, geography has something similar in some form where we see a similar upcoming or already kind of the beginnings of mm -hmm. this sort of reporting being required. And all of this comes back to, at the end of the day, data. And it's trying to extract from that data some meaning or some insight mm -hmm. that you can then drive an action. Right. And the being in technology, we love data. <laughs> we love generating data. We have so much data that we call it exhaust data at a certain point, right? And it costs money to keep it around. And the interesting opportunity for a lot of our customers is how do I take that thing that I'm paying money to keep and start extracting value from it, right? To drive my business or to drive transparency for my suppliers or so on and so right, forth. Right, and right. we're starting to see that we can now start leveraging that. Mike, I don't know if you know this. Us side reliability engineers, we love data. <laughs> You're totally right. Often it is easy to just keep the data because we never know Absolutely. when we may need it again. Bringing this love of data close to facilities and assets, mm -hmm. can you share some of the challenges your customers may have faced? There's a, a problem that comes up in, in managing this kind of stuff because you, you might hear uh, data and think it's all the same, right? It's not. Yeah. And in the broadest line I can try to, to start compartmentalizing things in is to say there's this IT world that a lot of us live in. There's also this OT world or operational technology world that a lot of the, the real world <laughs> lives in. And in, in digitizing or modernizing at a certain point in time, if you take any, any given project, they're going to apply the best of breed technology at that moment. We might try to future proof as much as we can future proof. Right. And 
and we make a choice. We, we know that we're going to do something that's going to be a trade-off of better, cheaper, faster. You can mm-hmm. choose two. And for a lot of uh, companies, what I see is that they've, they've made the effort to digitize parts of their supply chain or digitize mm-hmm. their facilities. And they now have this operational technology infrastructure, this OT infrastructure mm-hmm. that speaks in terms of SCADA alarms and all of the stuff that powers the smart lights that are in my building or the thermostats that are managing the heating and cooling units and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And that's a different network and a different set of infrastructure and different requirements with different protocols from all the infrastructure that operates the IT side of the house, the back office, the day-to-day stuff that lets me walk in the door and have my security work because my badge is, you know, mine, right? Those are two different systems. So bridging that IT to OT divide, that's a challenge that, that we have right mm-hmm. now. Right. And just it's as simple as this system speaks in a protocol that's talking bits and bytes and buses and kilohertz updates. That system talks TCP IP and networking. How do I, how do I communicate this super high frequency thing to a network that's off in the ether somewhere in the cloud, mm-hmm. whether it's private cloud, public cloud, doesn't matter. But how do I do that? And how do I do it at a scale that matters? Right. So that that challenge ends up creating this, I, I think, really tangible example of how edge compute can help address these types of situations. It creates this tangible example of how aggregating data and presenting it appropriately to drive a dashboard or to drive an insight or drive an AI model or whatever the the case is, that's really, frankly, the challenge, right? If I have this massive haystack of every sensor from every system in every building worldwide for my enterprise, what do I do with that? And a similar thing on dashboarding, uh, whenever anyone asks me, hey, we need a dashboard, my immediate answer is, cool. What decision do you want to make from that? And helping to work through that decision-making process, that outcome that you're trying to drive, tells you what data becomes necessary, right? And what, what truly is going to be valuable for you. My favorite question similar to yours is, what question do you want answered? Uh, yeah, that's a good one. And yep. with it, we would know what data you need to give us your insights. Because like you said, there's so much data. Right. If we right, just right. present them on dashboard, people would simply go, now what? <laughs> like, while we're on this subject, can you tell a story of how a customer was able to take successful action from the data? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the, the biggest examples I can, I can give you is actually a public reference okay. for IBM uh, in the sustainability space, right? But there is a massive, massive bridge the Sun and Belt uh, bridge in uh, Mm. Denmark. Sun and Belt operates this massive suspension bridge that is designed to last for multiple centuries. And the entire thing's instrumented, but it's in a sea. It's in the real world. It has to deal with sunlight. It has to deal with wind and erosion and rust and algae and all these different things. And... The, the fusing of visual data with sensor data, 
right? To be able to operate that mega asset. That's what allows the Sun and Belt team to do things where they don't have to put someone in a rock climbing outfit to go out every single day to cover just a part of the bridge, right? They can get a much better view of the entire asset over time Mm. and choose where they're going to invest, right? That's a a great example to offer. It's amazing because it's that confluence of data, of analytics, and then driving an outcome back to the business to drive, you know, choosing where I'm going to spend time to, to fix issues or to proactively fix issues. With data, we can be objective on our prioritization and make Absolutely. decisions. Absolutely. Mike, there was a viral social media post a few weeks and months back, I think, that originated from someone taking a video of a roller coaster and the video shows that the structure was being disconnected every time the roller coaster goes to a corner yeah i remember i was thinking oh my gosh this will be a perfect use case for the drone inspection to keep it safe versus being notified by customer or or Mm worse yet from the news absolutely and that's that's why i bring up the civil infrastructure example right i mean if you take any anything as big as complex as your roller coaster or as a bridge or as a tunnel, yeah. the part you see is just a small bit of the overall thing. And if I have someone who's driving over a bridge or taking a ride, they're only going to get a glimpse of something. And that something may or may not be important. It may be okay in some situations to have some some apparent issue because it's designed like that. The building that I'm in uh, is actually a building that we affectionately call the rust bucket because its facade is exposed metal and it's designed to have a rust powder coat on it because that's just (laughs) a way to build a building 50 years ago. (laughs) And it looks kind of cool, but it's brown, you know, and it's okay because the entire facade is this, this rust metal thing, but you wouldn't want that same finish on a brand new glass skyscraper, right? right, right? right. That would be out of place. Those are great civil infrastructure examples. I especially like what you said, that what we see is only a small part and requires much more instrumentation to get feedback for us to take meaningful action. So Mike, drone inspections, AI, and machine learning to give us insights of those data. I'm curious, a CTO of sustainability software, what would you consider as success and know we have arrived at this future? Well, the the future is now. You know, <laughs> we live in 2023. I have... I have a device that I walk around in my pocket that has a quad core processor, probably five different kinds of radios <laughs> in it. You know, think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. I have three, four cameras actually thinking about it. Um, <laughs> Very true. Uh, laser scanners. Like I live in the future, man. And that success point is us acknowledging that we have this data, we have the ability to drive insights. We can take all of these really gnarly hard problems, like in ESG reporting and environmental reporting, you might hear a term like scope one emissions. That's yeah. how much carbon are you putting into the world? Uh, you, you measure that by your power draw, by the things you make and a few other kind of mm-hmm. fairly basic 
This went in, that went out. Scope two emissions is for your suppliers, for all the things you're consuming, how much carbon did they put in the world? And so you ask the question to them and you do the math. You say, okay, I bought 17,000 of this. I bought 5,000 of that. Multiply by this, multiply by that. And here's the answer, right? My supply chain starts to affect me there. Scope three emissions, that's, that's the important tough one. one. Right. Because that's the tough one that says for my suppliers, suppliers, right? Going all the way back, right? What's the complete supply chain? What's the complete story? And that's a data problem again. Knowing and acknowledging that we have this information available to us and then being able to orchestrate and pull it together means we need to be able to consume the data in the first place, make sense of it, normalize and drive it with a dashboard, right? To help drive <laughs> insights. But I'm sorry, you can't help me with that. that. <laughs> exactly, right? Second, that the key thing is that if I have a dashboard and I take no action from it, what good is it? That's the key thing. So now driving action back out, that's what matters. It's driving those actions into the real world. And that's where in the sustainability world, that full feedback loop of, hey, I pulled this together. I had this insight. I can roll a truck and have someone go out and actually go touch that device and make a change or make a, a, a repair or make something to drive the feedback loop to closure. That's to me, I think, when we've arrived, we can close all of it. That's, that's why I sit in sustainability. Love that. The importance of driving action in the real world is what matters. Mike, in SR, you have this saying of actionable mm -hmm. alert. That is, oh, right. um, alert someone or be a Slack page duty unless the alert is actionable. And actionable means it can be by people or by automation. And the future is being able to inspect the outcome, the whole feedback, and understand the impact of those actions. I think you just described how we operationalize data and dashboard mm -hmm. to arrive at this future. Yeah, that's, that's always the hard thing, right? Is, is choosing, one thing I joke with my team about um, whenever we talk about prioritization is we have way too many opportunities, challenges in front of us, right? Yeah. We can do a lot. It's choosing where are the two or three things mm -hmm. that will affect the problem that's at hand that we can make the most impact. That That's the hard question to answer. Mike, I was speaking with our colleague, Chris Hammond, also in Austin, mm. and I like to mess up the quote, but he said something like, design is done not when we have nothing else to add, but when there's nothing else to take away. Yep. And his challenge was for us to be really intentional on what is a must-have. Oh, yeah, I love that. That's So one of the, the things that I, I'm a huge fan of is... Um, design thinking practices. And, you know, there's a bunch of ways to do that. IBM has our, our practice, which is you know, observe, make, reflect, or observe, reflect, make. Any order doesn't matter, but you must do all three. And it's that closing of the loop back that, that really is what enables you to take action and, and drive things like product market fit or drive responsiveness or drive a higher SLA or drive an outcome for a constituent or for a customer. I couldn't agree more. Closing the loop, the feedback is so critical. So Mike, let's pivot to call to actions. Of course. What would be your suggestion for a C-suite executive who may be listening, 
and wonder what they need to do to get started? The first thing is understanding what data you have. At the most basic level, so many enterprises have data silos within them, either from mergers and acquisitions or different departments that came up at different times. That IT-OT divide is the most basic one. That's a true, true issue. Understanding what's available to you and just getting that inventory is, is step one because you might be surprised at what, you, what you're already paying for at the most blunt level. But then two is now that you have that, what do you need, right? Where are the gaps? Where do you need to supplement something? Where do you need to draw an inference to understand what the inner workings are of some processor or machine? A good example of that is there's a, a massive customer of ours that makes cement, They've got these massive facilities and there's a core, core, core process where a machine the size of a Mack truck takes at one end a bunch of raw material and at the other end, one of the core constituent pieces of cement comes out, right? This kind of right. fine powder. And you, you can't put sensors inside of it because it's literally these gigantic ball bearings and rocks <laughs> tumbling around, Right. But you can measure the output and you can measure the input mm -hmm. and you can build a control loop. And if you're smart enough with the control loop, you can make a decision now that will affect your output in two hours. That inference enables you to drive mm -hmm. a better result as opposed to, oh, this is wrong. Hey, we need to fix it. And how do we fix it? That basic, basic, what do you have? What do you need? What do you need mm -hmm. to, to create to... Those questions are questions that I think anyone would, would do service to ask their teams and to start providing answers for. Once you have all of that, then the next question is, okay, how do I take action from it? I, I mentioned the idea of the feedback loop in terms of driving sensing information up to some higher level system. In our case, that's something like uh, Envisi, which is our carbon accounting uh, dashboard, wow. right? But the actions that come out of that might drive, like I said, an actual person going into an actual physical location to go do actual work. It might drive shutting down a piece of equipment. It might drive reallocating some VMs because they're not being used, right? Those actions going out, similarly, you need to know what you can and can't do or what you can push back to your suppliers and things like that. And those, again, will become some interesting questions just to, to, right. to drive that choice of, okay, what's the, top, what's the top two or three things where you can take an action? So as a question of understand what data you have, what's available to you, what do you need to understand the gaps to take action, and lastly, who and how can take action from it to drive better results and outcomes? Now, Mike, switching to a side reliability engineer persona, and you know we love dashboards, what words of wisdom do you have for SREs who are also inspired by you and want to take actions to contribute to the sustainable future? We talk about turning sustainability ambition into action. And site reliability engineering, to me, is one of those places where 
it's almost too easy to fall into the trap of just taking action after action after action. In, in a similar way, you can end up in a bad feedback loop where you're just responding to things, right? You're not, mm-hmm. you're not being proactive in situations. In, in SRE, we, we talk about proactive maintenance or, or proactive monitoring and all those things. I think sustainability is an extension of that premise mm-hmm. because if, if I back, if I, if I project forward, right, mm-hmm. in what action am I taking and what's the downstream implication of that, then the most basic might be, hey, we have a spike coming uh, because we're hitting the end of a quarter, so we need to ramp up or we need to adjust or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. But a different question might be, well, if this is going to happen, how can I plan for the workload in a way where I can still meet my SLA, but do it in a way that I spread the work out over cheaper, more sustainable mm-hmm. compute, right? Or how can I avoid doing undue work? Uh, a, a basic thing, I talk about high yeah. velocity data pipelines with my team all the time. Uh, yeah. we, have a, we have an ingest pipeline for part of the maximum application suite. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're feeding millions of data points into it and driving a bunch mm-hmm. of cool stuff. But the basic question there is, how can I do a computation once? How can I avoid having to do work multiple mm-hmm. times? So if, if the application architecture is such that I can take bytes and parts of the data flow and save a partial answer and then use that later, I can literally mm-hmm. save the compute. I can save the yeah. cost. And it becomes, it moves the problem around, right? Because yeah. sometimes it's easier to redo some math in Java because I'm sitting in a JVM and it's a simple right. equation and I have the, the data in front of yep. me, and right? It's <laughs> real quick. But if I'm talking about billions of rows of, of data, it starts to add up. Huh. So I think those those kinds of questions, that kind of thinking... That kind of stuff is a good opportunity to look at that broader impact. And those are, I think, the really gnarly problems that show up because, again, uh, I've yet to meet someone who goes out to design something with malice. No one ever sets out to do a bad thing. But over time, requirements change. Over time, the baseline assumptions change. What started out as a batch process that runs on seasonal basis now is being run every two minutes, 24-7, 365. Those requirements drive a need to go back and reevaluate the architecture and reevaluate how you're providing service. And that's where I think SRE is, is really positioned well because sitting at the point of observability, sitting at the point of architecture, mm-hmm. sitting at the point of of delivery, that's mm-hmm. an essential pinnacle where you have that all-seeing eye to, to be able to interact and kind of push and pull and make differences, uh, I think, everywhere. That's a thought-provoking response, Mike. I was just thinking we are all accustomed to doing laundry or running our dishwashers doing off-peak hours to save money. So why haven't we asked the same question on when we run those jobs? The big one there is, is frankly, not even when, I, when can I postpone the job, is when can I start the job and when does it need to be finished? Mm. Right? Those, those are different questions. Exactly. Not everything needs to be executed immediately. And Mike, bringing in right. the S from ESG, mm-hmm. 
as we have a diverse team, when we introduce someone with a different background, and when they ask, Kevin, Mike, why are we doing it this way? <laughs> and if we can't answer it, it is a trigger for change. Absolutely. And that's, 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 that's why I love that idea of like the combined financial report. I mean, ESG, right? Environmental, social, governance. We lump those together. And that social aspect is super important. In fact, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of blended multidisciplinary teams for that reason. And one of the, the most basic level, uh, I can go back to the Renaissance period. If you've never, if you've ever heard of a book called The Medici Effect, uh, you should go look for it. The premise is that the Renaissance effectively happened because of this family, the Medici's, that were these patrons of science, patrons of art, where they brought so many people together mm. from different backgrounds that you end up with like the Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci's of the yeah. world. And it wouldn't have been possible the science advances of the time, the art advances of the time simply would not have happened without this blending together. So a similar thing I, I think is true in operations yeah. and in building software and building systems where you should see the multidisciplinary background. We should see people from a uh, different, uh, literally different backgrounds, right? Yeah. In the conversation. And that's, I think, essential because yes. it, it offers you that chance to question, like you said, but it also offers you a yeah. chance to look at the problem, right? I talk about mm -hmm. gnarly problems. There's this idea of, you know, trying to work on what's the most impactful thing. You know, it's often the question is, hey, where can I have the most impact? Yeah. And those problems are not easy, right? Those are not going to be slam dunks. If they were, they wouldn't be able to be done right and yeah and there's no clear answer so when you start weighing these hypotheticals or you start looking at well hey we don't there's no past to build on here yeah having that diverse perspective really means that you can have someone say well yeah so i did this uh because you know i worked on a project this one time and mm -hmm. you know it was just how we you know we we figured it out because this was a similar yeah. queuing problem or something like right, that, right? right? And that's cool. We need that. Well said. Diversity drives innovation and challenges the status quo. We can totally have a sequel episode on this topic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, in closing, I'd like to go back to the inspiration of the podcast. What would be your ingredient and recipe for companies to turn their sustainability ambition into action? An outcome. I think that that premise of, of data, knowing the salt and pepper seasoning <laughs> that you need there, the, the, the fact that there's these pockets and pools of, of different information mm. is absolutely essential. And then being able to organize it and, and make sense of it, that's got to be the, the recipe to an, to an extent. But that data capability, taking that, organizing it, building it into an AI model, building it into a heuristic that can drive your dashboard, right, to answer your question. You've got to have that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you're just kind of throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. And like I said, we live in the future. We live in the era 
of being able to to ask for a car and in two minutes it's outside the door. Think about that for a second. I can pay for things without ever having touched anything from yeah. this device that's this smart, you know, telecommunicator or whatever, Star Trekky, whatever example you want to offer. We have to take advantage of that. Yeah. And a, a, a good challenge to think about, right? Take these as a moment, right? This is not a phone. This to me is a very smart edge device. It has CPUs, it has sensors, it has telemetry, it has software mm-hmm. running on it. It has a jail or hypervisor or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it's, it's a way to drive these things that you can use to notice, for example, is the building occupied? Can I do that in a way that's private? Can I do it in a way that's that's going to be sustainable for not just me as an enterprise, but for my employees or for my constituents? Those are the things that I think matter. I love it. The future is now, everyone. <laughs> Embrace the amazing technology and tools to gather, organize, and surface action from the data. Thank you so much, Mike, for spending the time with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. I also like to thank you, the audience, for listening. I am Kevin Yu, Principal SRE of IBM Sustainability Software. See you on a future episode where we continue to talk about how the practice of SRE can lead us to a more sustainable future.